Reflections on William Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 Goethe said, Would you see Shakespeare's mind unfettered? Read Troilus and Cressida. And the great Shakespearean critic, Harold Goddard, said, Shakespeare apparently wrote Troilus and Cressida for a pit of intellectuals. If then the superficial taste of his audience happened to coincide with a deep and serious disillusionment on his own part with popular ideals of the heroic and romantic, the occasion must have offered an irresistible temptation to unburden himself of his innermost convictions, to let himself go, so to speak. On the other hand, Goddard says, it is, in any strict sense of the term, the most intellectual play he ever wrote. And it is, I think, the diagnosis of the central human problematic, written by a man in a very dark mood because of the persistence of that human dilemma. He chooses here, as he chooses always, a frazzled culture, cultural moment in which to uh, explore the problem. Uh, that is to say, an intact culture, one that's humming along, uh, doesn't reveal its confusions the way a stressed culture does. So uh, Shakespeare always begins with a moment of cultural confusion. Any culture is choreographed to conform to its mythology. I've been using as a synonym for mythology this, the, the metaphor of the soundtrack. Uh, it's, that, it's, it's that musical background to what's going on, which tells us, how to, tells us what's happening and how to feel and emote with regard to it. And culture choreographs its uh, key events to its mythological soundtrack. And it is the soundtrack that gives them their meaning. Shakespeare, in this play and in others, but specifically in this play, plays the soundtrack at 78. That, by the way, is a metaphor that cannot be used much longer, but I assume it can still be used on a few of us, so I thought I'd take, a, take advantage of it before, before it departs. <laughs> so he takes the, he takes the soundtrack uh, that was recorded at 33 and a third and plays it at 78, and suddenly the great rhetoric sounds like Donald Duck. And uh, we begin to see through the mythology. It's not John Barrymore anymore. It's Donald Duck. And, and one begins to question the depth of this, of this myth. And, of course, Shakespeare has a special interest in this play. And it has to do with what Goddard calls his deep and serious disillusionment with the heroic and the romantic. There's a passage in Yeats's famous poem, Leda and the Swan, which might give us a place to begin. Uh, the poem is about the mythological event where, in which uh, Zeus uh, lusts after Leda and cannot have her, so he, he transforms himself into a swan and rapes her and leaves her. And Leda was the mother of Helen. And Helen was the uh, focus of the Trojan War. 
And so in the middle of this poem, Yeats says, A shudder in the loins engendered there, the broken wall, the burning roof and tower, and Agamemnon dead. The rape and the war are connected. Some kind of genetic connection between these two kinds of lusts is intimated here. And we want to follow up on that intimation to see where it might lead us. And that's what Shakespeare is doing in this play. One more observation from Harold Goddard. He says, Lust is the most fiery, the most devastating, the most deadly of the passions. War is the most fiery, the most devastating, the most deadly of worldly phenomena. What if the two engender each other in endless succession? Now, that is what we might call a pre-Girardian insight. That's written in the 40s. But it is in response to that hypothesis that we could place Girard's uh, mimetic theory. He goes on, The appalling power with which metaphors of sexual lust illuminate the nature of war and vice versa proves that they are based on millennia of human experience. You may know the book by Denis de Rougemont, which is entitled uh, Love in the Western World. It's a book also written in the... 40s, I think it was written in the 40s, and it is a book filled with what we might call pre-Girardian insights, intimations of the problem, central human problem, particularly in Western culture, uh, that Girard's work has, has uh, illuminated in a special way. And I'll just read you a couple of passages uh, from <clears throat> de Rougemont's treatment of the relationship between war and what he calls passionate romance. He says, There existed in the Middle Ages a rule actually applicable to the arts of both love and war, the rule called chivalry. And he quotes from a, a text reviewing the Middle Ages entitled The Waning of the Middle Ages, and he quotes this passage. The church was openly hostile to tournaments. It repeatedly prohibited them. And there is no doubt that the fear of the passionate character of this noble game and of the abuses resulting from it had a great share in this hostility. And then the Rougemont goes on. Finally, chivalry was killed by the invention of artillery. The last surviving formalities of love were swept away by the War of 1914. And I would emphasize the symbolical fact that we have stopped making formal declarations of love at the very time we have allowed wars to begin without any formal declaration either. I first read that passage during the Vietnam War, which was, by the way, not called a war. It was called conflict. And then he concludes, any alteration in military tactics may be looked upon as related to an alteration in the notion of love or vice versa. And by the way, he doesn't mean love in terms of real love here. He means passionate romance, or what Gerard calls mimetic desire. But let's go back to Shakespeare. Shakespeare had prepared himself for the writing of Troilus and Cressida some years before in a long poem entitled The Rape of Lucrece. The background of the poem has a relationship to Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, in that Lucius Tarquinius killed his father-in-law and, put in, and uh, inserted himself on the throne. His son, Sextus Tarquinius, 
was out on a military adventure. This is how the story goes. His son was out on a military adventure with other Roman uh, generals. And they gathered at night, one night, and began to uh, regale one another with stories of how wonderful their wives were, how beautiful, how alluring, how faithful their wives were. And they were all impressive stories, uh, none more impressive than Colatinus's story of Lucrece, his wife. And they all heard them, and then they said, well, let's go back to Rome without being announced and find out how faithful our wives are. And so they returned to Rome, and they're all chagrined except for Colatinus because they find out that their wives are out having a, a, a gay old time and, and uh, not as faithful as they thought, except for Lucrece. And Lucrece is the model of uh, beauty, faithfulness, uh, uh, decorum, and so on. And it is agreed that Colatinus has won the day, that he really has the ultimate prize. And immediately, Sextus Tarquinus develops a, an intense passion for Lucrece. And as the rest of them go back to their military campaign, he sneaks off and goes to uh, Colatinus's estate, where he was received as a member of the royal family warmly and so on. But in the middle of the night, he sneaks in and rapes Lucrece and leaves. And because, and, and then Lucrece calls her husband and father and their allies, one of whom is, is uh, Junius Brutus, and they run the Tarquins out. In her pain after the rape, Lucrece stands before a tapestry depicting images of the Trojan War. And she immediately connects her situation to that situation. See? And she says this, obviously referring to Helen. You realize the Trojan War is fought over the, uh, over the fact that Helen has been, has been abducted by Paris, the Trojan, from Menelaus, the Greek. And the Greeks and the Trojans are now fighting over possession of the most beautiful woman in the world. Why is she the most beautiful woman in the world? Well, that's the thing. She has the face that, that launched a thousand ships. Any face that launches a thousand ships gets to be called the most beautiful. We have to make sure we, we follow that uh, syllogism in the right direction. In any case, here's what Lucrece says standing before that tapestry. Show me the strumpet that began this stir that with my nails her beauty I may tear. Thy heat of lust, fond Paris, did incur this load of wrath that burning Troy doth bear. Thy eye enkindled the fire that burneth here. And here in Troy, for trespass of thine eye, the sire, the son, the dame, and daughter die. For lo, here weeps Hecuba, here Priam dies, here manly Hector faints, here Troilus swoons, here friend by friend in bloody channel lies, and friend to friend gives unadvised wounds. And friend to friend gives unadvised wounds. Total chaos. And one man's lust these many lives confound. Had doting Priam checked his son's desire, Troy had been bright with fame and not with fire. 
connection between lust and war, which Shakespeare is now going to explore in Troilus and Cressida. But I want to go back to the beginning lines of the poem. They are these. Born by the trustless wings of false desire, lust breathes Tarquin leaves the Roman host, and to Collatium bears the lightless fire which in pale embers hid lurks to aspire. I just want to call your attention to the, to the, to the, to the lines that end with this, the, the rhyming lines here. False desire, lightless fire. A lightless fire is a fire that gives heat but no illumination. Lightless fire, false desire, lurks to aspire. And we remember here that the usurper, politically, is the rapist sexually. And what we have here in these terms, false desire, lightless fire, lurks to aspire, is the cultural DNA squirming under Shakespeare's electron microscope. And the question that remains to be answered is what are its reproductive processes? How does it transmit its contagion? And that is what Girard's mimetic theory provides for us because it connects mimetic desire with mimetic rivalry and mimetic violence. The usurper and the rapist are father and son in the story. They are the Tarquin. It's the Tarquin thrust uh, in both cases. In each of these related episodes, existing cultural distinctions and the prohibitions that keep them inviolable are violently overwhelmed by mimetic desire. When I say cultural distinctions, I, I mean uh, there's a king. The king is one that you don't, uh, you don't kill and remove. Uh, you don't challenge, right? The king has, in terms of the cultural distinctions. And in the other one, what we, the way we term it, another man's wife, another man's wife, which you, which you could say, now, wait a minute, that doesn't do justice to the fact that she's just who she is. She's a woman. But what the term another man's wife does recognize is the mimetic basis for the desire itself because it brings into play the, the existence of the rival. In uh, Death of the Salesman, after Haploman's latest sexual exploit, he tells his brother Biff, she's engaged to be married in five weeks. Maybe I just have an overdeveloped sense of competition or something. He's the third executive I've done that to. Now, who's he doing what to? He's the third executive. I've done that too. You see what I mean? The Sextus Tarquinus was doing something to uh, Colatinus uh, as much as to Lucrece. So we have this term, another man's wife, indicating the, in the language we use the, the mimetic uh, origin of this passion. In any case, I want to talk about cultural distinctions and, and prohibitions because in both cases they are violated. The cultural distinctions tell us who we can compete with and what, exa how, how, what level of competition we can allow and so on. The prohibitions keep us from, from uh, uh, abandoning those uh, distinctions. Cultural distinctions and the prohibitions that keep them sac sacrosanct 
are overwhelmed in this poem, The Rape of Lucrece, by mimetic desire. The result is a crisis which is finally resolved by a scapegoat. Now, you will be surprised to have me call the Tarquins scapegoats, but they, regardless of their culpability, politically or sexually, they're scapegoats in the sense that they function in a cultural ritual independent of their culpability. In this case, they happen to be culpable. But that doesn't keep us from using the term scapegoat because the scape term scapegoat has to do not with their culpability but, but whether or not their expulsion or execution or whatever is being used in the cultural ritual that has little or nothing to do with them. And in that sense, I think we can call them scapegoats. And the scapegoating mechanism that comes into play as a result of this crisis makes possible a new social configuration, namely the Republic of the, the, the government by council with a somewhat modified set of cultural distinctions and prohibitions. So you have the whole process in a certain embryonic way right there in the Rape of Lucrece. And now Shakespeare is taking that and the years that have intervened in which he has pondered this and written about it in his other plays and he's going to work with it. The next question is, how about the tone of this play which commentators have seen over and over again is decidedly dark and... Uh, and despairing. What is it about this play? Well, I'll share with you something that uh, uh, René Girard wrote in context of a uh, discussion he's having of the, the plays of uh, Racine, the, uh, the French uh, dramatist. Racine had written a play called Andromache, and Girard summarizes it this way. Orestes loves Hermione, who does not love him. Hermione loves Pyrrhus, who does not love her. Pyrrhus lo loves Andromache, who does not love him. Andromache loves Hector, who cannot love anyone being dead. Girard says, though this is a tragedy, it is almost impossible to summarize Andromache without satirical effect. If we convince ourselves that Racine's heroes, for whatever reason, cannot experience what they call passion unless their desire is thwarted, if we see in them the dupes of some hidden mechanism, we can no longer take these passions seriously as passions. For one thing, all these passions have become identical. They cannot be read as the exceptional, unique sentiments that tragedy demands. And so, despite oneself, it becomes a very ironical experience. And the critic who is now sees this and brings it out will immediately be accused of being a satirist instead of being a critic. I think that describes Shakespeare's position here. For some time, Shakespeare, uh, uh, throughout his career, but the latter part particularly, is self-critical about his, his career and the stage and so on. And I think he is aware uh, in this play that he is using the... He's exploiting the mechanisms of cultural delusion which are so essential and without which, he, it seems, we cannot live. The prologue tells about the story and how the Greeks came uh, to rescue Helen, Menelaus's wife who's been abducted by Paris and so on. It says, Now expectation, tickling skittish spirits on one the other side, Trojan and Greek, sets all on hazard. In other words, the war has gone on. A war, war, you see, is a cultural ritual. It's a sacrificial ritual. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the most intact, primitive cultural setting, 
uh, one can have a sacrificial ritual of very short duration, very few victims, and, and everything is put back together again. Uh, the more that is compromised, uh, the more confusion there is in the social environment, the, the longer the ritual goes on, and the more victims it takes. And in this case, you have a 10-year-old war, uh, which has been inconclusive. And so both sides, both cultures, the Greek and the Trojan cultures, are suffering from the dis disintegrating effects of being engaged in a ritual that's that lengthy. They're finally exhausting their cohesion. And both of them are finding internal divisions. In other words, they can't keep their cause together over that, length, um, over that period of time. Scene one is Troilus and Pandarus. Troilus begins with these words. Call here my varlet. I'll unarm again. Why should I war without the walls of Troy that find such cruel battle here within? And there you have the summation. Suddenly for Troilus, the battle outside, which is the, which is the cultural enterprise, that's, the, that's the, the task that is being sponsored by his culture, that, is, that doesn't have any appeal anymore. That's the war out there. He says that one much more fascinating to me has developed in here. Now, Achilles could say exactly the same thing on the Greek side. Achilles could say exactly the same thing for, for different reasons, but it's exactly the same sentiment. Uh, so something else has happened. Pandarus's response to this, let me go back and just read it. Pandarus, Troilus says, I'll unarm again. Why should I war without the walls of Troy that find such cruel battle here within? The battle within is a romantic battle for the love of Cressida. So he's abandoning not only the cultural project, but he's also abandoning the heroic project for a project that is personal instead of cultural and romantic instead of heroic. In that way, He's a modern person. He's a modern person. The, the romantic, the, the heroic one is, is losing its appeal. The, cult, the collective one is losing its appeal in favor of the individual one and the romantic one or the, or the sexual one or the personal desire. Let's put it that way. The cultural desire, the grand cultural desire for victory and honor and distinction and so on is losing its appeal in favor of the individual desire for whatever it is. And like, like anybody who undergoes that shift, and most moderns have undergone it in one degree or another, like anybody who undergoes that shift, it seems as though he's leaving all of that nonsense and getting down to something that's much more real. In fact, he's jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. Pandora says, will this gear ne'er be mended? Gear here means conflict. Trollus says, I'm not interested in that war anymore. There's some, I'm involved in an entanglement here inside the walls of Troy. It's much more fascinating to me than that war is. And Pandora says, will this gear ne'er be mended? And in this case, this is Shakespeare talking. It's an ironic comment on what Troilus has just said. 
Troilus is just entering into this same problematic at another level, really at square one. Uh, and and Pandarus here is speaking in a way that he doesn't understand as an actor on stage, but his but his creator understands it. Will this gear ne'er be mended? And Troilus says, the Greeks are strong and skillful in their strength, fierce to their skill and to their fierceness valiant, but I am weaker than a woman's tear, less valiant than the virgin in the night and skillless as unpracticed infancy. They still believe in their cause. I don't believe in it anymore. It's lost interest for me. Something much more fascinating, fascinating has gained my interest. He's becoming what we... This is, this is the birth of the age of the individual. Individuality. Okay? Go for it. Do your own thing. This is, that kind, this is that kind of transition that's being made here. I'm not interested in the cultural project anymore. <clears throat> now, how do you keep them down on the farm once this starts to happen? How do you keep them engaged? How does the culture keep the, the increasing number of trolluses that seem to be drifting away at its margins from its weakening gravitational field? How does the culture bring them back home? To add to it, to, to work in its in its collective at its t- collective task. That's the question. I think there are probably two ways. One, you that you surcharge that uh, gravitational field in some way. You have a big cause, see, uh, like a war, or what we call quote the moral equivalent of war, something which never quite works the way a war does but some major thing that is always mimetic, like, like the race to the moon. Another way of saying that same thing is you find a way, you find somebody who will, who will uh, re-record the soundtrack for the, in the contemporary idiom, musical idiom, so that you get more and more people tapping their toe to it. And you bring these lost sheep back into the fold. That's one way. It doesn't work so often these days. The other way is to find some way to bring into alignment the collective desire with the individual desire, which is what capitalism has done magnificently. You see, capitalism has this money machine. In chasing our, each of our individual desires, we, we turn the treadmill that turns the money machine that produces the, the larger cultural... This is the way it's supposed to work, by the way. This is the way it's supposed to work. It works far better than any other... For doing what it does... Now, you may question what it does, but for doing what it does, it works far better than any other system. They are all in the process of dying. Uh, but because it has managed this this amazing superimposition, it has it is managing to survive a little bit longer than the others. Its collapse may be more catastrophic, but it it uh, it uh, in the meantime, it's nothing new. In book two of Homer's Iliad, when the when the Greeks are they don't they want to go home. They're tired of the war. They're fighting and so on and so forth. Old Nestor, who was always full of Polonius-like advice, gets up and tries to regather the, 
the Greek troops. And he says, Let no man press for our return before he beds down with some Trojan wife to avenge the struggles and the groans of Helen. Now that, those three lines are so revealing of everything. Everything. But what I would like to call attention to is how they superimpose the collective desire with the individual desire. And they get everybody back into the task. Let us not go home until we each bed down with some Trojan woman. There you have it. Well, in its own way, that is the formula that has made capitalism work. So, back, back to Trollis. It's Pandarus who has inspired this transition in Trollis from his attention to the cultural project to his attention to his own uh, object of desire. He, in other words, it takes a pander to break this cultural spell and to reintroduce in its place uh, the chasing after an individual object of desire. In a, in a sense, pander is the, is the unwitting agent of the mimetic contagion. The war, the, the structure of the war is we're here to get the most beautiful woman in the world for us. And Trollis has suddenly discovered, with the help of Pander, that however wonderful it might be to get Helen back for Menelaus, it might be even more wonderful to get a Helen for himself. So there's a kind of a, medic, a connection here with this transition that Trollis is making. He's saying, I think I'd like to have a Helen my, of my own. So I'm not interested in the larger issue. Now. And Pandarus has done that by replacing in Trollis's mind Cres uh, Helen with Cressida. He says, Cressida is as fair on Friday as Helen is on Sunday. So it's, a, it's an anachronism, you see, but it's a, it's a wonderful one. He changes don't look at Helen anymore. That's the big, that's the cultural cross. Look at Cressida, that's your own. So he shifts attention. And Troilus recognizes this. He says, Troll, he says, Oh, Pandarus, I tell thee, Pandarus, when I do tell thee my hopes lie drowned, reply not in how many fathoms deep they lie and drenched. I tell thee I am mad in Cressida's love. Thou answerest, she is fair. Poorest in the open ulcer of my heart, her eyes, her hair, her cheek, her gait, her voice. Every time I tell you that I'm heartbroken, I can't have her, you tell me how wonderful she is. He, she, he says, you're driving me mad. This thou tellest me, as true thou tellest me, when I say I love her. But saying thus, instead of oil and balm, thou layest in every gash that love hath given me the knife that made it. Now, that's a, that's a giveaway. Pandarus is wielding the knife. And since when does, does love wound you with knives? This isn't love we're talking about. This is mimetic desire. And Pandarus is its agent. And he says, every time I complain of this wound that that, that knife in your hand has given me, you stick it in more and twist it. And Pandora says, I'm, I'm only a go-between. I'm only a go-between. 
I go over here and talk to you about Cressida, and I go over to talk to Cressida about about you. So, and both of you don't really appreciate my services. There is sounded an alarm, which is the soundtrack. Supposed to call everybody, convene everybody. See, this is the this is the big one. This means we all gather. You drop what you're doing right there. Everything gets dropped, and you join the cultural project. It's the urgent alarm. Everybody drops everything and joins the cultural project. So this is the soundtrack at its most uh, infective. See, it's the it's the most powerful trumpet blast from the soundtrack. And Troilus hears it and says, Peace, you ungracious clamors. Peace, rude sounds. Fools on both sides. My gosh, this is amazing. He has become, he has become independent of all that. One can imagine that had it been had sounded before Pandarus got hold of him, he would have had goose flesh and been charging over to get in line, you know. And now he hears it, and with a wave of his hand, he says, that's ridiculous. Fools on both sides. And then he says, Helen must needs be fair when with your blood you daily paint her thus. You see, he's turned the syllogism around. The reason she's so beautiful is because you're dying like, like uh, rats in the field. You're dying by the thousands, and that's why she's beautiful. It's not that she's beautiful and therefore you're dying for her. It's that with your blood, you paint her beautiful. The war is over. The memorial service is being held for the, for the slain. And who is going to say it was an unworthy cause? No, nobody can say that. One has to say it was a noble cause. And why is it noble? Because so many people died in it. It's exactly it. Trollus is seeing the whole thing through Shakespeare. It's seeing the whole thing. It's magnificent. Well, of course, not the whole thing. But the later stages he's recognizing pretty well. The earlier stages he's about to re-enter. He says, I cannot fight upon this argument. It is too starved a subject for my sword. Which is what most of us have said most of us in this room and most uh, of our friends have said over the last 25 years about whatever happens to be the great cultural project of our, of our society. It's not, really, it's not really interesting anymore. It's not, wor- it's not worth... This, it's not, it, it is too starved a subject for my soul. And then he says, I cannot come to Cressid but by pander. Now we turn to his problem. He waves his hand. He lets that one go. I cannot come to Cressid but by pandering. And he prays to Apollo. Tell me, Apollo, for thy Daphne's love. This is the story of Apollo chasing an unavailable object of his love. So he's appealing. This is like, you know, the virgin of so-and-so. You, you appeal to Apollo under a certain dispensation. He appeals to Apollo, the one who chases the eternally elusive Daphne. And he says to Apollo, tell me, tell me, Apollo, for thy Daphne's love, what Cressid is, what pander, and what we. And that's the, what this play is written to explore. What is going on here? Really, what is going on here? And Apollo immediately answers him with a metaphor, and he speaks it. Her bed is India. There she lies a pearl. Between our Ilium, 
and where she resides, let it be called the wild and wandering flood. Ourself, the merchant and the sailing pander, our doubtful hope, our convoy and our bark. What an amazing metaphor. She is in India, the pearl, and between us is this vast and, and, and ruthless ocean. And we are the merchants and pander is our, is our ship to get us there. And the truth is, she lives next door. Now, what's going on? Why doesn't he go around, knock on the door and say, would you like to have a Coke? Why can't he do that? He says, I cannot come to Crescent but by pander. Why? The hope has to be there. But something is intervening that, that would, be, something is, would be destroyed by a direct, candid contact. And what would that be? The myth. He says, I've got to get across this wild and wandering flood. And we think of those lines from Brutus, on such a full sea are we now afloat. <clears throat> Pandarus then goes to Cressida. And before he shows up on this, this is in scene two, before he shows up, Cressida and her servant uh, Alexander are having a conversation. And it's very illuminating to the background of what's going on here. Alexander says, uh, something very uh, strange has happened. Hector, who's no, the Trojan, great Trojan warrior, Hector, whose patience is as a virtue fixed, today was moved. He chid Andromache and struck his armor. Now, Hector is the model of, uh, of patience and nobility. And suddenly he's, he's vexed uh, and he's emotionally distraught. And he's chiding his, his beloved wife Andromache and striking his armor bearer. Right? What is going on? Something un, unusual has happened. Alexander says this. The noise goes this. There is among the Greeks a lord of Trojan blood, nephew to Hector. They call him Ajax. They say he is a very man per se that stands alone. Per se means independent. Stands alone. Nobody else. Unique, right? But then he goes on to tell about Ajax. He is valiant as the lion, churlish as the bear, slow as the elephant. Now Shakespeare, when he uses bestial images, means beast. Often in some of these Shakespeare things, we don't get it. It sounds noble enough, but here he leaves absolutely no question about it. He starts off with the lion. It seems like we're going somewhere. And then we go to the bear and to the slow elephant. And Ajax is a, is a slow, stupid, brutish creature, even more so in this play than he is in Homer, and he is very much so in Homer. He is valiant as the lion, churlish as the bear, slow as the elephant. A man into whom nature hath so crowded humors that his valor is crushed into folly, his folly sauced with discretion. There is no man hath a virtue that he hath not a glimpse of, nor any man an attaint, but he carries some strain of it. He's a perfectly mimetic creature. When he sees somebody who has the least kind of interesting quality, he immediately adopts it as his own. And he sees somebody else and sees another one, he adopts it as his own. And these things get stuck on. 
without any assimilation whatsoever. And he walks around looking like one of these weird composite images of everybody in the environment. He is that mimetic. He hath the joints of everything, but everything so out of joint. You see that? A mimetic creature par excellence. In other words, a well-rounded man. Cressida says, but how should this man that makes me smile make Hector angry? Now, this is delightful, you see. How does such a creature, who is so basically insignificant from in the larger perspective, how could he makes Cressida chuckle? He's such a fool. How could such a fool make Hector angry enough to chide his wife and strike his armor? And Alexander says, they say he yesterday coped Hector in the battle and struck him down. The disdain and shame whereof hath ever since kept Hector fasting and waking. Now this is what it's like to live in a shame culture. He's an insignificant creature, but the very fact that Hector was knocked down by him has caused Hector to become so preoccupied with him and with that event, so painfully aware of how it might detract from Hector's honor that Hector has been able to neither sleep nor eat. Pandarus shows up when he talked to Troilus about Cressida. He says, Helen is not as beautiful as Cressida. Now that he's talking to, to Cressida about Troilus, he says, Hector is not the man that, that Troilus is. He doesn't think he's convinced her because uh, Cressida pretends that she's not interested in Troilus at all. So Pandarus has to, has to go the extra mile. And so he says, he, he realizes that when he says Trollus is a better man than Hector, it, it's not really getting the job done, or he doesn't think it is. So he says to her, well, I want to tell you something. Helen would rather have him than Paris. And I've actually seen her giving eyes to him. And so that really gets things going, you see. Helen likes her, and then you get the whole triangle and so on. The Trojans are now coming back from the battle, and so... Uh, Pandarus says, well, look, let's get a nice place on the wall. Watch them come in, and I'll talk to you about them as they come in. And, they, and it's, like, it's like the lineup, you see. You want to get the, the desired objects. Let's pick one out here you really like. And, of course, he's, he's selling, right? He's got his, his favorite. So they come in, and he says, oh, yes, that's Aeneas. He's fine. Uh, but uh, 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 Troilus will be along anon, and then that's Antenor, and so on. They come in. He said, but you wait till you see Troilus. He's, he's, he, he stands head and shoulders above them all. And then he says, and that's Deiphobus. And they say, oh, no, no, that's not Deiphobus, that's Troilus. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> he, he mistakes him for his brother Deiphobus after all of this build-up. <laughs> but in any case, he, he recovers and starts talking about what a magnificent creature this Troilus is. He leaves, and Cressida confesses on stage alone that she, in fact, uh, desires Troilus uh, without Pander's help. But then she says, Yet, hold off. Women are angels wooing. Things won are done. Joy's soul lies in the doing. That she beloved knows not that knows not this. Men prize the thing ungained more than it is. That she was never yet that ever knew love got so sweet 
as when desire did sue. Now she is saying what we all know, what we have all experienced, what we think of as just one of these curious things about romance. But if you look at it, it is absolutely astounding. She's saying, I have to play this game. Because unless I am elusive, unless I am uh, unavailable, there is a sharp drop-off in the energy that I am for the moment calling love. Now, what kind of love is it that is diminished by getting to know one another? 